the episode. Before we begin, remember you can ask us a question and we will answer it on the podcast at the end of the episode. You can ask us by emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, share, subscribe, and leave us a review. Today, we are discussing the readings for the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Time, Year A. The prophet Ezekiel asks, what is the purpose of repentance? Paul pleads to us to cultivate a Christ-like disposition and participate in the same life of Christ. And Christ in the Gospels begins his apocalyptic and eschatological discourses. But first, the sacred and the profane. So the sacred this week, we have the Feast of the Archangels on is that Friday. Uh, Friday coming up, yep. Friday, I believe, Friday the 29th. Uh, and, you know, that's... That's a, it's a good feast, I think, and uh, especially in this time period, maybe, because I think there's a real decline in talking about angels among believers. Mm. But on the other hand, those who do not identify as Christian or who do, don't really identify as any believers but are maybe more spiritual talk a lot about angels. Mm. So when I when I go to Barnes & Noble, I usually check out the philosophy section, and interestingly, Interestingly enough, right next to the philosophy se- section is like para. It's like para philosophy or para psycho, you know, psychological. Okay. And it's a lot of new age stuff. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of spell books, tarot cards. Right. But then also kind of these angel books. And so it seems like among Christians, there's not much talk about angels, but among, I guess, those who are spiritual, there's a lot of talk about angels and mm. angel numbers and things like that. Right. And I think that's a real shame for Christians because angels play a significant role in salvation history. Yes. And in, and in scripture and right. then even beyond. But yep. um, I think, you know, maybe for those with a philosophical bent, uh, a tendency to, you know, intellectually talk about our faith, um, the question of angels, I find, can be almost like a wrench in the system. Because, mm. like, how, how do you exactly prove the reality of angels. Uh, it's easier to talk about like the nature of God on a, on a natural philosophical level. But when it gets to angels, I, I've always, at least for myself, I've always found it a little bit more, like you have to just put your faith into that a little bit more, right? I know Jonathan Peugeot talks about angels really intellectually. Um, he has some really intelligent things to say about like governing spirits, you know, over um, cities and, 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 you know, communities. Yeah, the, the principalities. Principalities mm-hmm. and powers, exactly, uh, which is fascinating. I think that, you know, and that fits, fits well within our Catholic tradition, of course. Uh, but, like, uh, on a philosophical level, I think to think about angels, we, we can see that there's a natural place in the order of creation for angels. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar, of course, with the uh, chain of being, right, where you know, God is the, at the top, being itself, and then uh, there's a list, like there's a hierarchy of being, and it, it starts from the bottom as just rock, uh, matter. Yeah, in, in was it inanimate creature? Inanimate, yeah. 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 Uh, then you go to plant life, vegetation, then you go to the animal life, sentient being, uh, and then you get to man, which is like a link between the spiritual and the, um, and the physical. The spiritual and the yeah, the spiritual and the and the physical. But then, if you don't have angels in there, you kind of just jump right up to God, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's almost like a natural um, space in the hierarchy of creation 
for angels. And so just as we can think as um, like man is a hybrid of uh, matter and spirit, uh, plants are just matter and animals are just matter, then we can think of things that are just spiritual alone, right? Right. Um, and so, again, just I think uh, it makes sense. Um, the reality of angels does make sense on a, on a philosophical level um, or at least a reasonable level. Now, when we get into the theology of angels, angelology, I talk about guardian angels and the hierarchy within the, the angels. And, you know, Thomas Aquinas talks about each angel having their own nature. Yeah, their own species. That gets very, yeah. yeah I, I never, well, did you ever take a class on angel? Is that a, is that a class offered at seminary, uh, angelology? I, I don't think so. It was only really, a, I guess, a personal interest because of the the very lively debate between Dominicans and Franciscans over right. do angels since angels are created beings, they must be made up of matter and form. Right. But if angels are immaterial, how are, how are they made up of matter? So you have the Franciscans, I think, particularly with Bonaventure and Don Scotus on one side mm-hmm. saying that there's this sort of spiritual matter. Right. And then Francis, uh, Thomas on the other side rebuking that, saying there's no such thing as, right. as spiritual matter. Um, but matter I mean, is the different, differentiating factor. Yes, it's the individuation right? factor, yeah. So then I would agree more with Bonaventure from my limited <laughs> limited understanding of this. Yeah, it, I mean man, whew, this can get <laughs> this can get <laughs> yeah. this can get heady. Uh but there's a little bit of discussion I think with Thomas about the distinction between existence and essence. So that that can be uh, on one hand their essence is what distinguishes them. It differentiates them. Right. Yeah, okay. And and they're they are composed of those. They they aren't purely simple immaterial beings like God who has no parts to him. Right. And his existence and his essence are one. I think one argument that Thomas makes is that angels have existence and essence. And because of those are distinct, mm, okay. therefore... Interesting. They, right. Yeah, they're composite beings. Do both the Franciscans and Dominicans agree that each angel is its own nature? Yes. Okay. Because that's, that's that becomes a, a point... Of contention with Don Scotus and the later Thomas mm-hmm. is okay. So you have this spiritual matter that differentiates all the angels. Yeah. Uh, but if then all those angels participate in that spiritual matter, how are they different? Right. 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 So like you and I share the same nature, human nature. Yeah. So we're we're not our own species in that sense, right. but we are different because of our matter. But then you have Edith Stein, who says that perhaps <laughs> humans do all have their own species like angels. Right, right. Um, well, I think I would go more, I don't know. Uh, my, my knowledge of this is very limited, but it seems to me that the reason why God could not just become an angel and save humanity is because he has to partake in that thing's nature in order to redeem it, right? Right. And because, because human nature is shareable, um, common among all members of that species— uh, he's able to become man, and then what he does affects all of humanity. Right, um, and that's part. That's something that's that's crucial to our nature is is that relationality, right? Um, which angels don't share in. Right. Um, anyway, I'm sorry that that went down a little bit of a philosophical rabbit little, hole. A little um, bit of a more than I expected, but <laughs> a little bit of a Thomist or a scholastic discussion. Yes. Um, yeah. There, there is a question of how much can we talk about angels without revelation? Edith Stein talks a little bit about that. 
And I think for a long period, up until I think maybe the medieval period, angels are sort of a given, that there are many spirits for someone like Ambrose or Jerome or, or Augustine. The fact that there's multiple spirits, that's just a reality. Yeah. And then especially if you read scripture, it's okay, this just reinforces it. And then you get into the medieval period, and that's when you get a little bit more uh, philosophical or theological precision. Mm-hmm. And then the late period of scholasticism, you get the the mocking how many angels can fit on the on the head of a needle right, or the right. pin, uh, uh, the yeah. needle head or the pin, and that was to basically show how far scholasticism had gone, how much out of hand it got, and right. that now we're quibbling over well, how many angels can fit on this pin? Yeah. So, but in the mass of the archangels, the the feast, uh, there's the readings from Daniel talking about the angels ministering. God's throne. Then you have Revelation, of course, with St. Michael battling the ancient serpent, Mm -hmm. the devil. But in the Collect, it talks about God who marvelously orders the ministries of both angelic and human orders, and or angelic and human life. And I I think this this gets to what we what we've been talking about is that. Our, our life in this hierarchy of being is not separated from from um, other creatures. It's not just right. kind of rocks, humans, God, but that there's this other hierarchy above us that, as the Collect also says, watches over us and defends us. Mm-hmm. That I think a, a renewed devotion to the archangels could really, could really help people understand that it's, it's, there are these heavenly and celestial mediators between right. us, you know. Uh, yeah, that's one of the beautiful things about how God acts in the world is that he shares his salvific power with his creatures. Because, you know, it, it could be easy to make the argument, you know, if God is so powerful, why does he need angels to, you know, protect us? And, you know, um, but if you take that line of thought, that objection to its end, then really there wouldn't be any need for us to do anything. We would be pacifists almost. So why can't God just do X, Y, and Z and just, you know, uh, that's it. It's over. And we don't need to participate in that. But I think it was Thomas Aquinas who, who says that we've been granted the dignity of causality, that by our actions we can actually make an effect in the world. And likewise, that, that uh, applies to those things that are spiritual too. Uh, you know, he, in God's generosity out of his being, which is love, he allows all of his creatures to participate, even those that are spiritual and material, to, to, to participate in his great work of salvation. Um, so there's a beautiful like, community uh, in understanding the angelic hierarchy. So, Yeah, that's something that the medieval mind, I think, just, uh, I don't want to say took for granted, or but something they just perhaps accepted was that there is this cosmic hierarchy, this massive community, mm-hmm. as you said from the earth all the way up, and they had this idea that the higher rules the lower, right? Right, right. You know, just like on earth. So God right. is obviously, since he's the highest being, um, he's being itself, he controls everything below it, but then there's this rank order of angels that help him in, or aid in his divine province to humans. Right. And I think this is where Jonathan Michaud gets a little bit of his idea of principalities, that over every city, you know, in, in life, there's an angel. Yeah. And... and in a right, sense, so. right, and we see that pattern pattern on Earth. You know that that's 
that's one of the ways to interpret that phrase in our Father, on earth as it is in heaven, right? right. Um, we see these patterns on earth because they come from a higher pattern in heaven. So, right. yeah, good so stuff. that was the sacred. Time for the profane. All right, go ahead. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for Sarah's birthday, your sister, my wife, we went to a restaurant down the street from where we live, a couple blocks, and it's a restaurant that converted an old Methodist church, I believe, Baptist or Methodist church, into a restaurant. And while I was eating there, I couldn't help but to feel like there was something sort of symbolic or emblematic about the American life Mm. and a restaurant inside of a church. Was it a nice building? It it was very nice. Um, Some say that it's nicer now that it's a restaurant. Okay. It looks or it looks nicer. But it looks like a church, right? It's yes, from the outside, architecture and everything. Right, and you can see where there was maybe like a little bit of a sanctuary. Uh, The windows are still very kind of classic, ornate, and right. Okay. Um, And this, I mean, this isn't the first time I've seen this. Uh, It's happening in Europe a bit. Yeah. Well, it's even you know talk about the profane. Like there's like dance clubs, right? I think yeah. That are like old cathedrals. Yeah, I think somewhere in like. Northern Europe. Yeah, where they just convert these places. Right. And it becomes like a festival of flesh, honestly. <laughs> it's <laughs> kind of sad. But <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I'm I not know- saying that's what your dinner was. <laughs> yeah. Well, we did have meat, so we did have steak. So well, there you go. was a, a feast of animal flesh. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there there was a few places in, in Baltimore when I was in seminary there. I saw... Uh, that had, con- you know, some older Catholic and also Protestant churches that had shut down. And they've been converted into various things. There is, there's a brewery in Baltimore that's in an old church. Um, Archbishop Lori, I think, deconsecrated the church. And I believe they were able to remove the stained glass. But, I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. old church. And there's still some paintings on the wall and, like, in the sanctuary that oh, you wow. know, they didn't take down. It's very beautiful. Wow, and, and you're just there having a beer, just yeah, interesting. It, it's at least a little bit more like, well, uh, monks did create beer, so okay, yeah, but maybe they didn't not bring in the, the church, beer into yeah. this, you know, to the holy of holies. But so, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but but the symbolic part made me think of uh, Saint Paul when he says in uh, in Philippians, their God is their stomach, and their mind is set on earthly things, and I wondered. Is the American God our stomach? You know, is it, is it the mm. the restaurant industry? <laughs> hey, that's interesting. You know, I didn't I didn't make that connection. But right, you're, you're sitting in this. You know, imagine sitting in this sanctuary, right? And what you offer up, like you know, you give your money to a nice steak. That's interesting. <laughs> that becomes your oblation. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was a beautiful building. It was a great meal. There was this idea of this is a church, you know. Yeah. Like there were, I think there were, there was a picture when you came into the restaurant of an older couple. Uh, it was like a wedding photo, and then them outside of the of the now restaurant, mm. and they got married in that church. And you see, I no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I I wouldn't I wouldn't like that. <laughs> yeah, I was like to say. think of where I got married, and right. then to come back. Right, forty years to remind yourself the... of the sacredness of your union. You go back and you're like, "Oh, those are are those fries like salted?" Let me. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, right where that guy is is grilling and and that girl's having a drink. Yeah. I I got married. Right, I, exactly. I, I said my vows right there. That would yeah yeah. Um, 
Yeah, if that church has had any significance for you in your faith, which your church should, right? Your church should. Um, then to see that turn into something secular is, um, yeah, that that should prick your heart a little bit. <laughs> it would for me. This is not to to bash the restaurant. This is it's it's a good good food, but <clears throat> mm-hmm. just couldn't help but to get it yeah. out of my mind that I was in a church. No, that's but. interesting. Like imagine like seeing like you know Saint Anne's. You know, like we celebrated so many liturgies there. Right. Um, like seeing that like. Not just dilapidated, but just like used for something else. Like people are just dancing in there and like talking loudly and laughing. It's like I celebrated my first mass here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, that, yeah. That would be rough. I don't know. It's like Roman ruins or something. Yeah. Like yeah. you're. And that's what you know. I remember seeing because this tr- this trend was, it's older. Like I remember like at least a decade ago, um, I remember seeing uh, pictures of like these cathedrals in Europe being turned into these nightclubs, and there was something very. Um, just solemn about it. Um, it it almost just represents the old and the new, right? Like, like I can imagine these walls filled with people, like hundreds of years ago, and right. now they're still h- filled with people, but like completely different mindsets, different use of the space. Um, it's it's almost like um like a still image of uh, culture, where like it's like the church represents like the ghost of the past, uh, and it's like this is what Western civilization was built on. But like this is now, this is now how it looks. It's like the same space, right. but two different worlds. It's it, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. I'm gonna get the art period wrong. Maybe it's the Romantic period where you have these paintings of, of people lounging or picnicking in ruins, mm. of like ruins of of churches or like ancient ruins, and it, it's it's almost something like that. It's like you you don't even know, like there's no thought. Right. To like, what was this place? Right. Like, where, what, like, what, think about where you're standing. Right. Yeah. Well, there's well that, a... that, that profane got pretty solemn really quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, yeah. But you enjoyed the dinner. Like, the dinner was. Oh, it was awesome. It wasn't that solemn, right? You actually yeah. enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Like, okay, good. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there was like this pumpkin cake that we had. Oh, that was amazing. So, as, right, this is our first episode filming after the beginning of fall, right? Yes. Okay. We're in the autumnal season. The, the autumnal season. Um, as uh, some people call it, the Han Solo jacket season, right? Yes. yes. Everyone's wearing their vests. Yes. Uh, their black vests and, you know, <laughs> their blue jeans, whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, as, as cliche as this season can be with all the pumpkin spice lattes, um, I do love some pumpkin. Pumpkin flavored, like, Everything really. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. Oktoberfest beer—it's the best. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll have a review probably that on that in the uh, <laughs> the, the profane period coming up. We can actually bring some maybe pumpkin spice creamer for the yes. coffee. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should. Sponsored by Fall. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, our themes for today for the for the readings this weekend seem to center around salvation through humility and repentance and kind of some sub themes in there about obedience Mm self-knowledge self-surrender sacrifices we'll see as we work through but another note i want to make before we we get into it is that this weekend we are making an apocalyptic or eschatological turn in the lectionary so Mm -hmm. starting on the 26th Sunday, until the end of the year, the the Gospels will cover uh, Christ's eschatological 
discourses that he begins when he's in Jerusalem. So in the 21st chapter of Matthew, Christ enters into Jerusalem as kind of the, the prophet king, the Messiah, and there he will continue his ministry until his crucifixion. Mm. And the parables and the lessons he begins have something to do with this unveiling, as the apocalypse says, or the the eschaton, the theological term for the, the end of things. And I think it's important to understand that these discourses are apocalyptic and eschatological because it will help us interpret them. Mm-hmm. That because these words mean to unveil, it means what is Christ unveiling it about the ultimate things in his parables and in his teachings. I think it's also important because it helps orient us towards the coming feasts and seasons. Right. Because the the end of the liturgical year and the new calendar ends with the Feast of Christ the King. Yep. And that's, I think the full title is what? Christ, uh, uh, Christ, uh, Christ, Christ King of the Universe? King of the Universe. Right, yeah. So it's it's this culmination of all the things that that Christ is Lord of not just earth or not just the church, but he's Lord of the universe. Of he's he's yeah. king of all things. The la- and he will be kind of the, the king and judge at the end, at the end times. Mm-hmm. So it points to his second coming, that feast, but also begins the season of Advent the following week. Right. So it's the, mm. the, the many comings of Christ, the many advents of Christ. Right. And I, I think that's what the readings are trying to get us to do is to, now that we're in the, the season of, of autumn, you know, autumn gets kind of colder. Right. Things are in the cycle of, of dying to be reborn. And so the lectionary is turning us to think about the last things. Right. So we'll hear, you know, the parable of the vineyard, the king and the wedding feast and, and, and the like. Mm-hmm. So now let's really get into it. So our first reading is from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel takes up the question that if the sinner must live with the consequences of his sin— what is the purpose of repentance? Mm-hmm. And the answer includes that God's, it is God's promise of mercy and forgiveness that one's sins will be forgiven and he will be restored to friendship, but that one has to turn. And it's right. not just this former way of life that counts, but yeah. repentance. Because it says if someone is virtuous and turns from virtue to commit iniquity, he dies and he'll be punished for that sin. Yeah. So it's like, well, wait, but I was good before. Why? Why can't I kind of get the reward now? Right. Even though I, even though I kind of slipped up. Yeah. It's like, but you have to, you know, repent or or forget right. that. And th- this this passage kind of challenges, I think, the the Protestant notion, uh, once saved, always saved. Uh, you know, it's not just because you choose a path to to live. Uh, choose. Choose to go down a certain path, and they can never stray from it, right? Uh, by our, you know, the, we believe that our freedom is respected by God, uh, and we can turn from commitments that we've made. Um, you know, we see that naturally in relationships. Um, marriages, unfortunately, fall apart often. Uh, you know, turning away from something that you've committed yourself to is not uncommon to our human nature, uh, and so. Yeah, uh, I wonder how, you know, a Protestant would wrestle with this um, passage, because it seems like when we talk about about um, someone going like someone who is virtuous turns away from virtue, um, you know, through a Christian understanding, we could say someone who has been baptized, someone who has committed themselves to this lifestyle, 
if he turns away from that, you know, there's going to be a price to pay. Uh, and, and your promise to live that life is not enough to save you from an action to turn away from that path. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's very deed-oriented, I, I would say, this passage. Yeah. Because it's it's not just that you have to commit your life to this this path, but you also have to do the deeds that you say you are, the, mm-hmm. the, the virtues that you say you, you will do. But then also, if you do fall away from this path, you have to do the action of repentance. Yes. You have right. to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And that's what Ezekiel's getting at is God will forgive you and, and restore you to this path, but you have to repent. Mm-hmm. You have to do something. It's not just enough to say, well, I was at one point virtuous, and that's enough. Yeah. Right. And then the, right, and the wicked person, like, yeah, exactly, like you said, um, if he turns from his wickedness and does what is right and just, he shall preserve his life. And so, right, it's not exactly, it's not just in the mind. It's not just saying, like, I okay, I... That was a bad choice. I shouldn't do that anymore. It's not just turning away from evil, but also choosing the good, right? Right. Um, that, that's a good way to say that. That yeah. it, it's not it's not enough to uh, to choose the good, but also turn away from yeah from it's, evil. It's both. Now, what struck me about this passage is how it begins um, with with uh, you know this um, a voice crying out to God saying. The Lord's way is not fair. And this is actually a common theme in the Psalms, where uh, the psalmist would be looking at the life of the wicked and wondering why their lives are prospering. And, you know, the psalmist who is trying to live a good life, his life seems to be falling falling apart, (laughs) right? Um, It's this sense of the Lord's way is not fair can, can in a sense, summarize that theme in the Psalms. but I love, I love our Lord's answer. Is it not my way? Is it is it my way that is unfair, or rather, are not your ways unfair? I was reminded there's a, there's a um, chapter in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis towards the beginning where he's talking about when we have these uh, these questions about what is just, and we try to make an argument against God based off of a sense of justice. Well, what are we appealing to when we say the Lord's ways are not just? Or, you know, I thought he was all good. Why Why is evil happening? You're almost appealing to a standard that is above God. Like, what is that standard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to say, well, this is just and that's unjust and God should act this way. When we word, use words like ought and should, uh, and just and unjust, we're obviously appealing to a standard that transcends our own notions of justice. Uh, we're, we're saying it's something outside of us. But then if we put God under that, then we're not really understanding who God is, right? Because God is that justice. <laughs> uh, and I think what Ezekiel's getting at here is, is in, in a sense, uh, what C.S. Lewis was uh, to, uh, wrote about in Mere Christianity. It's it's our ways that need to be unbent to recognize true justice. And any sense of injustice, uh, injustice, any sense of evil, 
it does come about through human error, right? It's, it's humans that are the, you know, all the way from Adam's sin uh, in, in Genesis. Um, that's how we got on a path of injustice. And so is it really our Lord, the Lord's way that's unfair or rather are not our ways unfair? And when he talks about, when he talks about the virtuous man committing iniquity and then dying, he will die for his sins. And then the wicked man, if he is right and just, then he will preserve his life. And this also, again, just from a human perspective, this sounds almost ridiculous as well. We see wicked people prospering all the time. Again, going back to that theme in the Psalms. And we see just people who suffer and, you know, uh, and like their lives are ended catastrophically and, and, and through disaster. It's like, what, what does that mean? But I think what our Lord is talking about, life and death, he's not talking about life and death according to human standards. This is life and death on a cosmic level. And, you know, like Socrates once said, no harm can befall the just man. You know, if we think about harm in just a physical sense, that's absurd. On a human level, that doesn't make any sense. But if we can have the perspective of God, right, if we can have obtain wisdom and see that higher perspective, uh, uh, get to that higher perspective, we can understand that the wicked do die. The wicked do die, and the just live forever. Um, again, those those uh, words, life and death, that's symbolic for more than just physical well-being uh, or physical ailment. So, Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, talking about when you challenge God and say, you ought to do this thing. You're, uh, you're appealing to... You're you're asking God to appeal to or to adhere to some sort of morality that it seems like he that's above God that's above God yeah. that's outside of him. It's in the same way as almost asking who created God. It's you're you're putting God as a being among beings right. as opposed to being itself. And when you say God's ways are unfair, is what you're saying is God is beholden to some sort of uh, amorphous. Standard. Standard yeah. that is outside of himself. Right, exactly. Um, that is above him and everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a very interesting point that I hadn't really hadn't really considered. Yeah. That's... Well and and I just love this um the language that Ezekiel's using of life and death. Um you have to see that from God's perspective to understand uh what happens to the wicked and what happens to the virtuous. Um yeah, I think what Ezekiel is saying here is that God, what he values is this repentance and kind of admission of faults mm-hmm. as opposed to relying on former virtue. Yeah. Is, is it, it, Going back to kind of your analogy of natural or human relationships, if someone wrongs you, you want them to repent and ask for forgiveness and not say, well, I was good. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, that, not going to that, do anything. That's, right. That doesn't yeah. really tell me that you're sorry. It makes me think you want me to overlook the hurt because you were once good. Right. And, and I mean, you know, we know this, again, on a natural level. No matter how good a husband is to his wife, he can give her the world and sacrifice everything. But all it takes is one slip-up. You know, like one night of, you know, a drunken pleasure that, that can break the whole thing. And rightly so. Like the, 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 the woman would be in her right to say, you know, I, I thought you were different. And 
I don't know if we can continue the same way um, as before. Mm-hmm. Uh, one act can destroy the whole thing. Um, because part of understanding repentance or a definition of repentance that you can use is a restoration of friendship. Mm-hmm. It's a restoring of something that is that is broken. Yeah, exactly. That's what I tell people all the time in confession, especially people who have been uh, haven't been uh, to confession in years. I said, you you know, you've lived a life of sin for decades, but in this moment, this single moment, you can actually restore your friendship with Christ. Right. Um, that restoration of a friendship is, I find it like in in the confessionals very poignant for for people who've mm-hmm. been away for a long time. So yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a great point to make. It, you also have kind of this this common uh, prophetic motif of God desiring repentance, <clears throat> contrition, and conversion over deeds, I guess, or, or, or over sacrifice. Mm. Although it doesn't say uh, specifically sacrifice, but it's this idea that don't rely on other things. I want, what I want from you is contrition and conversion. Yeah. Um, although you obviously get that in, in the Psalms, but certainly later, these le- these later prophets are saying, if you have sinned, God wants you to convert mm-hmm. back. Right. And not to um, jump to the end, but we see that, um, to your point, in the gospel, when our Lord is talking to the chief priests and elders, those who offer sacrifice on behalf of the people, that obeying the law... And and, and uh, offering sacrifice is not enough to grant them mm-hmm. salvation. So, but we'll get there. We'll yeah, get there. well, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we can keep move, moving along. Um, even even our psalm this Sunday, you know, remember your mercies, O Lord. Kind of this idea that what God wants from us is is for us to turn to Him. You know, mm-hmm. remember your compassion, O Lord, and your and your love from from as of old. Uh, the sins of my youth and my frailties remember not, but in your kindness remember me. Yeah. Uh, it, and then this, he guides the humble to justice right. and teaches the humble his way. So this, that how humility is tied in a very integral sense to repentance. Yes. That one who humbles themselves is showing God this true contrition, and in, because they show this true contrition, yeah. he will forgive them. And that, and that humility... Not only is it tied to repentance, but ultimately it's tied to salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's that the psalm almost reads like a um, uh, an act of contrition <laughs> in a sense, right? Yeah. Uh, where it's like the sins of my youth remember not the sins of my past, but right now I'm repent. You know, I'm repenting, and because of your goodness, O oh Lord, and you can remember me as I am now. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful psalm. So moving on to our second reading. Last week I said that we wouldn't read from the Christ poem, but that was wrong. It depends. You were you were right in the sense that it it it's an option. Yes. And so it can be omitted. Right. Um, so it, should, it shouldn't be. But the yeah. the one thing that will definitely be read is kind of this preamble or preface mm-hmm. to the poem in Philippians two one through five. That wherever you go to mass, you'll definitely hear that. But then if you read the full thing you will get the Philippians 2, 6 through 11, right. which is the Like the you said, poem. it's the heart of the um, letter, really. Yeah, it's, it's the heart yeah. of the letter, and it really is Paul's master narrative and his master story about mm-hmm. 
Who Christ is. Who Christ is. Yeah. And as I've been reading it and as I've been reflecting on it, I, I almost in a, I almost want to have it printed out and read every day because it is mm. the story of Christ. I think it's one of the most like succinct, uh, I said, mythical narratives almost yeah. about, about Christ. No, totally. And, you know, we did an episode on this um, in The Serpent and the Cross, talking about the um, exaltation of the cross. This was one of the readings. And uh, I think, right, in that episode, we, we, we mentioned, we went into this in more detail. So check out that episode if you want to um, really hear our thoughts yes. more in depth. But uh, as it relates to, to today, I love how it, it, you, Paul prefaces his Christ poem, which is the pattern, like you said, it's, it's, the, um, it's, it's the pattern of Christ and his mission. He says, before he gets into it, have in you the same attitude that is also in Christ Jesus. So he's encouraging us to take up the pattern of the hero, essentially. Yes. Uh, and, and as Jordan Peterson put it, um, he said, from his understanding, which he's right, the point of the Christian life is to enact the meta, meta pattern of Christ's life into your own life. Um, the imitation of Christ. That's what we, that's what Thomas Akempis would call it. Right, um, right. And uh, so, well, it's interesting because Paul is saying, having you the same attitude that is also in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, and then goes into the poem. So he's saying, be like this, right? Act like Christ who did this, um, emptying himself, becoming a slave, exiting his father, entering into the chaos, and then defeating death there, and then rising, Um we're all called to that same journey, in a sense. So right. So the, there's a bit of debate about this this particular line in Ephesians two five about having the same attitude that was also in Christ. It comes a little bit from both interpretation, but also translation. Okay. There's a few different translations. You know, also having you the the same mind as opposed to attitude. I guess there's three main schools of thought. So the first one is, as you mentioned, intimate. Uh, um, imitation. Imitation. Yeah. Thank you. Does Paul promote imitation of something that was in Christ? There's location, which is do believers possess this by virtue of being in Christ? Mm. Do they possess this attitude? In the last one, this is where we might get some distinction, is participation. Is there a correspondence betwe- between the pattern of Christ's story as narrated in this poem, and the pattern of those who are in Christ. Mm, interesting. So okay. you and I might say that participation and imitation are, are the same thing. Yeah. But I think perhaps a superficial reading of imitation could be something that's just a copy of, or a mere, you do this, so I'll do this too. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe something still a little external. But what St. Paul is trying to say, so this is the interpretation I'm going to go with, is he's actually asking you to have cultivate the mindset and disposition that was in Christ. Right. To mm-hmm. be transformed in his life and not just do the things that he did. Right. Is that's that's what I'm gonna I'm gonna go with. And I, I think it's because Christ is setting himself up as you said that the archetypal hero, the divine model that we are supposed to have this vital participation coming from our the depths of our interior to make Christ's life, ours. Mm. Yeah, 
That's no, that's a that's a really good point. I, I was not aware of the uh, nuances in the translation, but that makes that that sense of participation really comes to a point. I think at the mass where we participate in his. We're not just remembering his the pattern and then enacting it in our own lives to defeat our own sense of obstacles in our way. But in a real sense, when we are at Mass, we become one in Christ and are able to defeat death just as he did in a real way. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, well, I, I would say that, to continue your point off the Mass, is the Mass is not an imitation mm-hmm. of the Last Supper. Right. It's a participation yeah. in the Last Supper. Right. right. It's not simply that we repeat the words because this is, well, this is what Christ said. So we'll, I guess we'll do the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's actually a re, a true re-representation yeah. you know, of, of being there at that event yep. and participating to the point of, you know, consuming, you know, the God-man. Yeah. And, and you are supposed to become a little Christ, not, you know, not just a, a copy, but actually have the same mind yeah. that, that Christ lived with. Yeah, exactly. And and it's not that we're receiving just Christ in the abstract, but we're receiving the crucified Christ, right? Uh, which is the centrality of his mission, um, is I, I, uh, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, uh, as Paul says in his poem. I so. think you see it more in this preface to the poem about this participation in the Spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind, with the same love, united in heart, thinking one thing. Mm. So it's really, it's not me imitating Christ, but it's actually that Christ and I are supposed to be one thing. As St. Paul says, my life is Christ. Yeah. Not that he's something external to me, but something that I've integrated into myself. Right. And, you know, we're not Pelagians, where we don't don't believe that we can just... um, rise up by our own power and, and, you know, take on our own hero's journey by ourselves. It's, we do need Christ in a very real way inside of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's only by participation in his life that we can defeat any evil that comes our way. Um, it, it's by his grace that we're saved. Um, and so, Right now, this is a very good clarification that it's not just, oh, we just enact the same meta pattern as Christ. You know, that's a nice story to think about while you're struggling, you know, maybe on a psychological level that can work on to some extent. But um, when you get down to it, um, no human is strong enough to save himself. <laughs> uh, and, and so you, that participation in Christ's life is absolutely necessary um, to become the people we're called to be. Um, and this is why, you know, Paul would later say, that um, it's um, in his weakness that Christ is strong, right? It's it's in that humility of bowing oneself um, to 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 allow Christ to work in our, through our weakness. So, yeah, no, that's all all, all good stuff. I know uh, Carl Jung has picked up the problem of the imitation of Christ a few times, and what does it mean for the Christian to enter into the same life? What does it mean for the Christian to imitate Christ? And part of the limitation is, well, that would mean that you t- take your life all the way to the end and sacrifice it to, to save others, I think right. he says, or says to save yourself. And to which he says that's, that's not possible, right? Only, only Christ could do that. Mm-hmm. But I would argue from a certain point of view, 
that it actually is what you're supposed to do. Not not that you yourself, by dying to yourself, save people, mm-hmm. but it is perhaps a a means to which God can use you to save others. Right. You know, by your yeah. self giving, you right. actually are called to follow Christ all the way to crucifixion. Yes. At least symbolically, mm-hmm. to die for the sake of others. Yeah. Whoever those others are, you know, your your parishioners or your family or, or your spouse, whoever it is, that you actually are supposed to take the, the invitation that far. Yeah. I would say. No, definitely. Um I, I yeah, I agree. I think but I, I think as Christians we just want to remember that that um that power to take ourselves that far comes from Christ, right? Yes. That's the point is like when we participate at the mass, um, when we're united to him on the cross in that act of salvation, where that that becomes the motivating power in us to then live out our lives in a holy in a holy manner. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So what Saint Paul is trying to say here is he's trying to draw a parallel between the the attitude and behavior he expects of believers who are in Christ, and the attitude that and behavior he finds in Christ Himself. So mm-hmm. whatever Christ had, you too are supposed to have. Right. So. One, one I, I guess interpretation of this is that the, the this life of Christ does not come about primarily through contemplation or private holiness, but through service of others and mm. faithful sacrificial witness to the world. Right, right. So, I would just like to caveat that a bit and talk just like a word on this whole idea that holiness doesn't necessarily come through contemplation or private practices, but through this witness. And I I would say this, that while it's the teaching of the church and the saints that everybody's called to some level of contemplation, I agree that the ground of contemplation is love of neighbor, humility, and charity, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. That you, everyone is called to prayer for sure, but what makes that prayer fruitful is not because you pray. It's because of the virtues that ground it. Right. And someone like St. John of the Cross or St. Teresa of Avila would say that there is, no, there is no holiness and there is no contemplation apart from the virtues. Mm-hmm. So that the beginning of the life of holiness and contemplation begins simply with living the Christian life. Right. You know, the, the first mansions in, you know, in the interior castle is actually just living the Christian life, and mm. it's just staying away from serious sin and practicing love of neighbor yeah. and other acts of well, humility. Well, and, and um, John the Evangelist would say the same thing. Like Those who say that they love God and hate their neighbor is a liar. Right. Um, and f- so for John, there's no distinction between, um, I guess we can categorize that in a sense as, as prayer and, and good works, right? Right. So, right. Yeah. And, and St. John the Cross would say that it begins with imitating Christ. As St. Paul says, it would be to live the life that Christ lived. So if the question is, how do I begin the life of prayer or how do I begin praying? The answer is actually to create a context and environment conducive to prayer. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. I, I think about yeah. when <laughs> our cathedral here at one of the masses has a an hour of adoration before, before mass. Mm-hmm. And I would go to that mass so I could pray a holy hour before mass would begin and there was a series of weeks where i was driving to mass and i was listening to 
just like really upbeat music, <laughs> you know, like really yeah. kind of excited music. And then I get to the holy hour and it's like I'm practically bobbing my head, right. you know, and, and I <laughs> right. can hear it in the back of my mind. Right. And I thought, wow, this is really distracting. I should, I should either not listen to music or change it up. And so yeah. I, I just decided to listen to some Gregorian chant on the way. And that totally changed, mm-hmm. you know, the holy hour. So the same thing it, on a kind of a, a micro level is you have to to create that environment yep. that fosters prayer. So yeah. even if it's just it's just staying away from serious sin, mm-hmm. that's actually the foundation of right. Praying. No, that's such a good point, and it's not just that. No, that's a really wise piece of practical advice to people who I think would even say like I don't get anything out of mass. I'm like, well, what are you doing before mass? You know, um, are you just rushing, jumping in the car, yelling at your kids? And then you just plop down in a pew and expect to, like, receive all this grace. <laughs> right. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, there has to be some cultivation on a natural level to experience the fruits of the Mass. Um, but not just before Mass. I think throughout your entire life, you have to develop a taste for what is good. Um, you know, if, if all you're doing is enjoying um, sinful pleasures all your life, you're not going to naturally, you're not going to enjoy what is good. You know, C.S. Lewis says that uh, heaven is an acquired taste, right? Uh, just like, like, you know, a good glass of wine, in order to fully appreciate it, you have to understand, you have to do a little bit of study and, like, you know, taste different wines and see how, you know, the, the textures and the flavors con- con- uh, complement each other. Same thing is true in our natural life. If you're not cultivating and learning and, and developing a taste for what is actually good and holy. You're not going to have a fruitful prayer life. You're not going to get anything out of the mass, quote unquote, you know, even though that's a whole other topic that, you know, getting (laughs) things out of the mass, I don't even know if that's a good way to put it. But anyway, that, yeah, that natural cultivation is so important. So important. Right. It's a question about what kind of life do you live? You know, and I think spiritual writers would call it remote or proximate preparation. Yeah. And these things, as you said, they happen all in all contexts of life and in all uh, natural examples, you know, same thing with sports, with working out, with dieting, all these things. It's, well, what kind of life do you have? Is it conducive to a life of the, the life of an athlete or the life of prayer, whatever it yeah. is? But I think it's safe to say in this passage, Paul is wanting us to have, wants, wants us to in flesh, you know, or in body. Christ's life in action. Yep. It, it's not yeah. ser- it's not a series of propositions that one intellectually accepts. Mm-hmm. You know, he says to do these things to to humble yourself, to empty yourself, to to empty yourself, perhaps to the point of death, if that's what God calls yeah. you to. And I would say death, either literally or symbolically. Mm-hmm. And then, as as Saint John of the Cross would say, if you want to be raised up, seek to go lower. You know. Yep. Go low and, and and debase yourself so that Christ will lift you up, and that that's in action again. It's not ser- not simply a, a list of things that you just intellectually assent to, right? Which I think this idea of intellectual assent moves very well into our gospel, unless you have some no, other points, which no, we can I'm, totally hit no, on. no. I think let's. I think it's time to transition to the gospel. Okay. So in this gospel. Uh, Jesus confronts the religious leaders who oppose him and his ministry, um, and he tells the the parable of two sons, which is not to be confused with the parable of the prodigal son. 
but this mm, one yes. is which because it kind of begins i feel like the same you know what is your opinion a man had two sons usually yeah that's well, what, well maybe this is in like the the christ uh cinematic universe where the, the, this is uh, you know this is <laughs> the, the cinematic uh, the, universe. <laughs> you have these are the two sons that are the prodigal sons like before they grew up right let's let's say that oh a little prequel. <laughs> yeah, a little prequel action to, Perhaps. <laughs> to the prodigal son. The gospel lore deepens. <laughs> <laughs> this is the extended universe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so he says, uh, Jesus says to the chief priests and the elders, uh, what is your opinion? A man has two, had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go, in, go out and work in the vineyard today. He, and he said in reply, I will not. But afterwards changed his mind and went. Then the man came to the other son, gave the same order. He said in reply, yes, sir, but did not go. Which of these two did his father's will? So that's not the, the whole gospel, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll stop there for now. They, the chief priests and the elders answered the first, in which Christ says that's, that's correct. So it seems like connecting to the first reading that it's not just your initial yes. So, yeah, right. Because... It's 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 almost as if Christ is giving us a warning about the obedience of faith. Mm-hmm. That on the on the surface said I I yeah I I believe or I I will I will obey, but then didn't follow through with any action. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody who says I don't obey, but then actually did obey, like that that that's the person who is sinful and then virtuous is better than the person who is virtuous and then sinful. Right. Yeah, and. This is there's a there's a few lessons here I think that we can unpack, but one is don't judge a person's character until they die. <laughs> I uh, think, yeah, that's uh, what Saint Francis of Assisi said. He said, you know, don't judge a man basically until or a man's life will be exposed upon his death. Yeah, so. and you know, there's so many people that uh, we could put up on a pedestal and say, look at the life, you know, this 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 great man. I see a lot of people do this with priests. And then it's all the more confounding for them if, God forbid, these priests get caught in scandal or something, right? Uh, on the other hand, you know, we say like, oh, that person will never amount to anything. Look at, you know, and then by the grace of God, they can turn their lives around and do something good, right? And so um, I think it's just, it's wise to not be so quick to make judgments about people's character um, based off of just their lives now, Um you know, we can. We, that's not to say that, like, you know, we, we can say, yes, that you know that that priest or this person or this politician, you know, he that's a good thing that they did, and you know, it's right to applaud them when necessary. Um, but understand that their lives are much bigger than those actions in a given amount of time. Um, so that's one thing that I was reminded of uh, in this parable. Um, the second thing, you know, at, you you stopped at the um, at about halfway through the gospel. Uh, our Lord says after it's unanimous among the chief priests and elders that the first son is the one that did his father's will, our Lord says that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you, you being the chief priests and elders of the people who are thought to be the holy ones, right? Um, And so I think we we probably have to talk about like deathbed conversions a little bit here too uh, because I think people can rightly, uh, naturally, uh, they can wonder like, well, how how is it that the church would allow people to just, um, 
get into heaven, like slide right in, uh, you know, three minutes before dying when they lived a life of just full pleasure, right? Uh, but that's what Christ says happens. So that's <laughs> <laughs> well, the the tax collectors and the prostitutes are are entering the kingdom of heaven because they saw the truth witnessed or preached by John the Baptist, mm-hmm. and they were willing, despite a sinful past, they were willing to convert. Right at, at the truth. Right, and that's what Christ says here. When John came to you in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him, but tax collectors, tax collectors and prostitutes did. Yeah. And this goes right to the heart of Christ's preaching, certainly in Mark. His, the first words he says are, the kingdom of heaven is upon you, mm-hmm. and repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah. So at the core of this entry into the kingdom is not the right faith. I'm, I'm going to qualify this. Is not the right faith, but the, a response, a repentance in response to the truth. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is, the chief priests and the elders are saying, "I'm a part. I'm a, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm you know I, right. I follow the Mosaic law. What do you mean I'm not going to get into the kingdom? I have the right belief." Mm-hmm. But he's saying to you, "Yeah, but John preached to you the way of righteousness, but you didn't believe him. Mm-hmm. And you didn't repent. So therefore, you're you're you know these other people are going to get in before you. Yeah. So it's it's I think there are some people, you know, extending the analogy." that are Christian or Catholic and say, well, I recite the creed. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I, I go to Mass on Sunday. I go Sundays. to Mass on Sunday. Yeah. Like, of course I'm entering the kingdom of heaven. And it's like, well, but have you repented of your sins, though? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, have you, yeah. have you lived a life of, of virtue? Not just, as you said, you, it's not just choosing the good, mm-hmm. but also rejecting right, the bad. Right, exactly. Like, what, what you believe, does it correspond to how you act. That's the key. And, and if those things are running perpendicular to each other, uh, I mean, even outside of uh, salvation after you die, that's a cause of great conflict in one's soul, right? Because you're not living freely in a sense. Like your, your mind and your heart are running in two different directions. Uh, and so, yes, like, you know, like you said, like I think to qualify that, that sense of right faith, um, that's important. Like we have to have faith, of course, uh, but it has to be running parallel to the way we live our lives. So that when we stand up on Sundays and recite the creed, it's not just something that we do because everyone else is doing it, but it's actually, yes, this is the faith that actually is born out of the way I live my life. Uh, right. And they feed into each other. Um, that's right. that's the right way to go to mass. <laughs> in I think a sense. Maybe faith as only an intellectual ascent versus faith as living yeah because I would say living faith is is the is correct faith right is it's something that informs my life as opposed to something I just say because a lot of people say the creed on Sunday oh yeah but how many people are saying I'm I'm turning away from sin yeah you know, I exactly you know my, my John the Baptist has preached the way of righteousness to me and I've I've turned away yeah. or is it just this right. sort of safety of and you know I have the right belief you can even argue I think that to even have a true intellectual consent should affect a desire to, at least a desire to live a proper life. Um, you know, I think like if you were to actually understand all the precepts of the creed and then say that, there should at least be some motivating factor in your life. Yeah, I agree because I don't think 
intellectual assent is is quite enough because I don't think that's real the right word I'm looking for because I I agree with what you're saying if you intellectually assent it should have some sort of impact it should, like what yeah. you're saying yeah so I don't want to call it dead faith I don't know what I mean that's no much, but I don't know for another term I think I mean it could be I think intellectual assent could be the right term but you have to just qualify like what the, what I what that exactly means it can't just rest in your mind right yeah um, yeah I guess yeah. that's that's what I'm thinking of when I yeah. say that is it's it's just a proposition right that if someone asks me like who's God I'd be like well it's uh, God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit you know yeah. And that's, but right. it's, I believe in God, the Father. Right. Him. Yeah. <laughs> but if you you said, you know, do you do you believe that God dwells in your soul and such? Like that's a whole other right, right issue. But anyway, um, but going back to um, just uh, my I, idea I had about um, deathbed conversions. Sure. I remember um, Jordan Peterson had a great uh, explanation of why deathbed conversions can actually be a thing. Um, it, you know, going back all the way to the first reading. Uh, we can say, oh, the Lord's way is not fair. Uh, but I think to, to say that is not to really understand what a death con- deathbed conversion actually implies. And what Peterson um, laid out, I think, was very wise. He essentially said that if, if a person truly converts under deathbed and regrets their entire life, that that's like that that would be grounds for like an existential breakdown <laughs> uh to actually say i regret my entire life that i've spent and like i have no chance of righting those wrongs uh, mending those relationships the people i hurt and i was given one chance to live this life that i have and i blew it if you really take that to heart and that causes conversion that could be a i mean that could be a kind of purgatorial pain in a sense right uh and so, you know, I think that when, when the church says that, you know, deathbed conversions are a thing and these people do have a chance at salvation despite only living in faith and grace for three minutes of their life, um, we have to – I think there's, there's, um, there, there's a beauty in that. And, 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 and I, yeah, I think Peterson's right. Um, to say conversion means a, an actual change of heart, and that can be painful. Right. Right. So. I mean, if if it's it's real conversion, there's also real contrition. And yeah, yeah. That exactly. al- that also takes a lot. And to the point of the gospel, tax collectors and prostitutes believed the the preaching of John the Baptist, and they repented. It yeah. wasn't they actually the I guess the thing that's implied here is that they actually changed the way they were living. Yeah. Well, right, and and, and that's the that's the key is that. Um, people who lived bad lives before and live uh, in God's grace now, they don't have it. It's not like they're living the best of both worlds. That's the wrong way to understand it, right? Right. Uh, and, and I think that that's where the mis- um, miscommunication can happen. It's like people who criticize a deathbed conversion. Um, it's not like, oh, they got the best of both worlds. They got to live a life in sin and they get to get to heaven. It's like, no, no, no. They like There's a deep regret and a deep desire to have not done those things in the past, and that that kind of repentance, um, it, it it can be. I think it can be painful. I remember. I think I mentioned we had a conversation about this the other day. Um, with we were sitting around with uh, family, uh, but I mentioned that my professor, uh, he once, he once um described what he thought purgatory would be like, and he said that essentially you would be watching the movie of your life. 
it's like, oh, I like movies. It doesn't sound that bad, right? But <laughs> I think um, his point was watching your life if you had chosen grace every opportunity that came to you and what your life would look like then. Um, and Catherine Siena's uh, popular quote, if you are who you could be, you would set the world on fire. Uh, you know, imagining the great things that you can accomplish and the person that you can be. Uh, if you actually saw that, like, truly, like, tangibly, like, you saw what your life could look like if you didn't choose sin in every moment, I, I, that, I, at least for me, that would, that would crush me, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and it should crush you. Uh, and that's the whole point of purgatory is that it unbends your will and desire um, so that you can then desire what is good. Uh, but, and, and I often give this um, to people in confession too. Um, if they might be struggling with a sin over and over again, to say, like, imagine what your life could look like if you were free from this sin. You know, people, imagine, like, walking down the street and people point to you saying, like, I want to be like him. Like, look how virtuous he is. Um, if you can begin to just imagine, like, your life in grace, uh, that could be enough to to get you out of, uh, you know, a pit of sin. So that was a little bit of a rant, but I, I think... Um, it's, I, it's, it's related. It's related, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, so some some additional points. Um, John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman, talks a little bit about this passage passage and says uh, it's emblematic of uh, promising without doing. Promising so we, hmm. And he goes through the different ways in which <clears throat> we deceive ourselves when we promise to serve God, but we don't perform. And shows the kind of ways in which we're not necessarily deliberately faithless, mm-hmm. but that we we mistake certain sentiments or feelings as being of service to God. Right. That's not really true. So one of the ways he said is mistaking good feelings for religious principles. Mm-hmm. That, that we we have great desires to serve God. And we think, therefore, we are, right. or that we have obeyed because we have a great desire to obey. Right. But he says, unless you actually have that tested, you haven't obeyed. Mm-hmm. Right. You may have a great desire to overcome temptation, but if you've never actually overcome temptation, then you've promised without doing. Yeah. And. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just. I'm reminded really quick. I'm reminded of um. I think uh, um, Louis C.K. had a bit about like he was like he had a first class um, seat on a plane and he saw like a um, a war veteran, like an older war veteran walking past him to go, you know, sit in the back. And he's like, you know, I should give up my seat for him. Uh, that would like that would be, like everybody would be like, wow, look how noble like this man is. And he's like, I didn't do it, of course, but it felt really good to, right. to think about that. Right. But it wasn't enough. Like, and the, the whole point is that why people are laughing is that we can feel good about just desiring these things, but unless we do it, then it means nothing, right? Um, so, anyway, yeah, yeah go ahead. <laughs> no, well, building right off that idea, uh, Saint Teresa of Avila talks about how we sometimes imagine that we have these virtues and we have these these desires in our imagination that we mistake 
for true determination. Right. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, we say we want to serve God. Again, we have a desire to serve God, but that's just how you imagine it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I know about this in my personal life, probably you do, and that you you think I I would lay down my life, you know, without without hesitation mm-hmm. for God. But then you won't even get out of bed at six a.m. Right? You know, it's <laughs> like right, or it's it's something's too cold or too hot or, um, you know, you barely make it on time for mass, and it's like you're telling me you're going to do these heroic acts, but you can't conquer yourself in these little these right. little ways. And she also goes on to mention how uh, sometimes we are deceived that we have these great desires, but we neglect the task at hand. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing the possible. We're content with desiring the impossible. Right. Yeah. So instead of doing being faithful in these small acts right in front yeah. of us, we wish we desire to do greater acts that are impossible for well, us to right. do. Right. And, and and like on the conceptual level, it sounds like oh, it's just easy to just die for your faith, right? Like right. Uh, I just wish that I could be a martyr and just go straight to heaven. And it's like your martyrdom rests in your devotion to your daily life. That's right. that's that's how you're called to be holy, not to die on a battlefield, but to you know, spend time with your children, love your spouse, right? Right. Do your work nobly, um, diligently. Um, pray um, without growing weary. Like, the, that's the battle. And that's where, that's where heroism is actually more subtle than what we think sometimes. Yeah. Um, that's the Christian life. And, there, and you know, like, like looking, at, looking at the great, the great stories of old, <laughs> if I can put a romantic twist on it, but, like, the, the stories that really stuck with me, uh, like, for instance, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, you know, we look at the heroes, they actually don't triumph in the way that we typically think of triumphing would be played out. Like, Frodo doesn't actually destroy the ring, right? Um, Luke Skywalker doesn't kill the Emperor. Uh, and just like Christ doesn't appear on a battlefield with a sword, he's dying on a cross. And so I, I think like the, the Christian and the traditional way of understanding, the Western uh, understanding of heroism is not like putting your sword in the dragon and standing on his corpse. It's, it's actually through acts of love, which is much more subtle and actually harder than, harder than sometimes, you know, just, oh, I wish I was martyred for the faith. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Right. No, it's, it's true. It's the, the small... Acts of dying to self, you just said that, and symbolic martyrdom that you go through daily. You know, it's it's picking up your cross and following Christ, whatever that cross may be, even if it's very small. Yeah. But you know, as uh, Saint John uh, Newman says, that the only guarantee of any sort of future future virtue is is your past virtues. It's it's the times when you actually have done something. Mm-hmm that counts for anything and this idea that justifying faith has no existence apart from its particular and indefinite acts yeah. that you know some think you know as i have at times you know that we've done everything and that we we have again these these great religious feelings and emotions but we haven't done anything but had good thoughts yeah and perhaps in our parable you have the one son saying, "Well, I said I obeyed. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I did the right thing at first, and yeah. perhaps that's enough. 
You know, I, I had a desire to obey. I didn't, but I had the desire yeah, to. It's just not enough. Not enough. Whereas what Christ is saying is it's not enough to have a desire or to pay lip service. You actually have to embody obedience yeah. by definite acts of and, obedience. Right, exactly. And the second son who actually obeyed, um, there's a sense of humility that had to be there too. Because uh, when he says, no, I will not go, you know, to then say, to not only go, but to actually have the humility saying, I was wrong. I should have gone in the first place and then go. Uh, there's a, it's not just a simple, um, yes, I'll go. No, I won't. But the person who said no, he has to admit that he was wrong, right? So humility is kind of the foundation for his change of heart that allows him to do his father's will. So Right. It, it doesn't give us a reason why he changed his mind, but I wonder if it's a sting of conscience. Right. That yeah. These two sons, you know, they specifies a man has two sons. So these sons are, you know, the the, ma- the man is the father. So perhaps the sons, the first uh, son that disobeyed, thought, you know, what my my father deserves this. Yeah. Or I, I my father deserves obedience, mm-hmm. and what I did was wrong. And he repents of disobeying a good father. Yeah. Maybe. Right. Exactly. And whereas the other one doesn't feel that sting of conscience because feigned obedience or promised obedience is better in his mind or is enough in his mind yeah. than actually having to go out and, and do that thing. I think all throughout our readings, one point that I think of is, again, this idea of participation or embodiment in that it's, it's not enough to have the right beliefs or have the right thoughts or the right answers, but you have to do something. Like in that Christ poem, there's no moral teaching there. Mm-hmm. It, right. it says nothing yeah. about Christ's moral teachings or lessons. It mm-hmm. says that he this did, he did. acts yeah. and he embodied it. Mm-hmm. You need doctrine and dogma. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I love that stuff. I, yeah. <laughs> I read about it all the time. <laughs> but just knowing that is not is not going to save you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As Thomas Akempis says, you know, it's better to feel compunction than to know its definition. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, you, you, you have to embody the Christian life. Right. And, you know, that's in the great company of all the saints. No saint was ever canonized because of what he wrote, but it's their lives that they lived. Mm-hmm. Um, even the great philosophers like, you know, Bonaventure, Thomas Aquinas, they lived holy lives. Right. It wasn't because they wrote beautifully, which they did. Um, but if they didn't live it, they wouldn't be canonized. Uh, saints are not canonized, again, for their thoughts or writings. It's, it's for their lives that they lived. So. Right. That's, that's their, it's their, their relationship that they, they witnessed to, the relationship to Christ that they, they gave witness yeah. to that, that makes, them, makes them saints. It's, it's, it's also, it's kind of funny that, um, you know, maybe picking up on a Jordan Peterson idea that the ideal is is not to be better than, you know, like the worst person you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of see this in the, you know, maybe towards the end of the gospel that it's, at least I'm not like those people, right? Like, at yeah. least I'm not like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And it's like, well, actually, the ideal to strive for is, is Christ. Yeah, of course. Who, yeah. who emptied himself mm-hmm. and to sacrifice his life. So, again, being in the right group and saying, well, I'm not part of that group, that, that's not the point. That's yeah. not who you're 
you're supposed to keep your eyes on. Right. That's a bad standard to live by. Right. Yep. Like you're, you're supposed to go out and work in the vineyard. Right. And that's, you know, that's really important um, because not even just um, a group of like, at least I'm not like them, but we can often excuse ourselves from living the life that we should live by just saying, well, like for myself, like, oh, well, I'm a priest, you know, like, and, and just settle into that identity, um, you know, or in your case, like, oh, I, you know, I'm a good husband, you know, um, uh, I'm a good father. Like, oh, I go to work uh, um, every day to provide for my family. I'm a good person. It's like, don't judge your life by what you've done and, well, yeah, don't judge your life by what you've done, but what you're doing now and what you can do in the future. Um, don't right. settle into your identity that you've, you know, those are important, of course, uh, but it's not enough to get you to where you should be. So Yeah, just a little point against current culture. I feel like current culture right now is having the right principles is, is what matters. Right. Yeah. Whereas I think we would say that, you know, you, your principles actually mean nothing until you've acted upon them. Yeah. And they, they are, they account for nothing. Yeah. Until. Totally. You've actually overcome or disciplined yourself or you know, whatever it is. And that there's this great distance between, you know, feeling something right and doing something right. Yeah. And. Right. Just because you, um, you know, you attend a protest or you post something on your Instagram saying, I agree with this group. Um, like, uh, yeah, that's, that doesn't, in the end, that doesn't do anything for your soul. Right. So. Any other thoughts? No, I think, I mean, we've, we've, I've, I've exhausted my ideas. Well, for now. I'm sure after we hit uh, stop, I will have some more. So. <laughs> well, well, in a few years, we'll be back on this reading. Yes, exactly. When it circles back around to, to year A. The cycle continues. Right. So. I, I think uh, by way of closing and remembering that this passage is, again, in the eschatological and, and apocalyptic discourses, what Christ is saying about the end times in that motif is, it's it won't be those who adhered to the law alone mm-hmm. or thought that because they had the law but it will be those who saw the truth and responded to it and yeah. repented yeah exactly those are the people who enter the kingdom of heaven yep not simply those who had the right belief yeah i guess yeah it's only those who acted it's not on the it. law that saves as paul would say right yeah right so we'll end there uh, thank you so much for li- listening, and thank you for the support. Uh, again, if you have any questions, you can email us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, please like, leave us a review, comment, share, all the things. All right.